Well, hi from Maui, Hawaii. It's Michael with this week's Ageless Wisdom Mystery School. And this week on the Mystery School, or in the Mystery School, or because of the Mystery School, (laughs) what is Mystery School? Mystery School is part of a tradition from time out of mind, found in all cultures and all societies, most notably in the West, those in Egypt and Greece and the Mediterranean area, the birthplace of civilization. Before there really were universities or colleges, before there ever was anything called higher education, there were small groups of enlightened people. Western civilization, it sort of begins with Pythagoras, who was one of the first... It's debatable whether it was Aristotle or Pythagoras that coined the word philosopher, but these guys were looking for truth, and they were not looking for the one right way. Pythagoras was so well-traveled, he went all over the known world at the time, speaking to so-called enlightened individuals, people that had attained a higher level of understanding, a a bigger picture of, of what things were really all about. And then to have initiates or students that you share that information with, <clears throat> that would be the mystery school setting. The development of consciousness, but that's still a word not in common use. So development of understanding, right? Not just new information and the information itself, but the process of understanding. What does it mean to really understand something? Right? Is it possible to have knowledge and not understand the knowledge? Well, yeah, of course it is. Don't you know people that are filled with facts and figures but have no idea what to do with them? Excuse me while I take a little sip here. So, <clears throat> understanding then goes beyond knowledge to a process of integration or seeing it from multiple perspectives, this knowledge. And that's what the mystery schools have taught, and uh, often through the use of altered states. And so each one of these classes will include a contemplative guided meditation, an exercise in altering states and becoming safe and relaxed so as to focus your attention gently but expansively and inclusively. And this speaks even to our theme for the week this week, which is an allegory that occurred to me in meditation, and as, as many of my more valuable understandings have. It's not when I'm busy working and being logical and breaking things down into little pieces to understand them that I get the big picture. It's when I think specific to general, when I think creatively or intuitively or some might say inductively. And that's a very different approach to thinking. That's a contemplation, an introspection or a reflection. That's where you get the gestalt or the big picture. So school will teach you to think logically and deductively, to go from general to specific. But if you want to complement that, as the brightest women and men have always done, 
and think specific to general and promote the aha experience of eureka illumination, you have to be a meditator. And there are lots of systems. Collect the systems. Again, let's get past as soon as possible the idea that any of us are looking for one right way. Um, one right way leads to exclusivity. We see it in religion. Um, you know, imagine philosophers getting together to talk about what they know and share what they don't know with an eager curiosity to know more, and they suddenly get in a fist fight uh, over who's right. I mean, that, that just doesn't happen with people that are seeking the truth. You can be right, or you can choose to understand what's more important. Your need to be right, my need to be right, pulls on lower brain functions at the expense of the higher brain functions and reinforces the identity that you are separate and that all differences are opposites. That's, that's good for survival if you're in real immediate danger. That is not that is not a place to understand the big picture. You you have to put aside the need to be right for the higher desire to really want to understand and to be open to new information and a bigger picture that again is more inclusive and harmonious. That's a major shift in your life. Again, not about the information, the knowledge. The particulars about what you're studying, but speaking more to identity. Who am I? Am I one that's looking to be right? Or do I really, instead, want to understand? The hell with being right. I want to know more. Challenge me. Add to what I know. And please, this idea that all differences are opposites, that ought to be a red flag. Anytime you see that in yourself or in others, wow. All differences are opposites. What a sterile place to live. Unless you're a uh, a right-wing, hate-mongering radio talk show host. Uh, <laughs> if you're trying to imitate Rush Limbaugh or Sean Hannity, that would be a good place to go. Uh, the right-wing loves either-or. And, and true faults and anything in the middle they consider liberal. So... I guess that's why college is a liberal arts uh, experience, largely. So our, our theme for the week is mindfulness. I want to talk about mindfulness, and uh, sometimes it's called detachment. And I want to work this allegory. The title of the seminar this week is Who's Driving Your Car? And what we want to detach here as we work this allegory, is the truth of who you are from your thoughts and your feelings and your behavior. So let's start with the idea of the Trinity itself, because I think it really, really helps. It certainly helped me a few years ago uh, to begin to look at the, if you will, lower correspondence to the Divine Trinity, the Trinity in man. Now, the best way to approach this is to say it in order so you get a, oh, 
in just in the habit, uh, even if you look at a person and look at their mind, look at their forehead, look at their head and say that's the mind, the thoughts, the mental aspect, and then you look down at the heart, right? The organ that pumps blood is often associated with the highest frequencies of love. Our emotional center is actually a little below the heart. Most emotions are felt in the belly, uh, what George Bush called his gut. But actually, that's a little lower. That's instinct. And above the gut feeling that is instinct is a gut feeling that is intuition, a little more refined. And above the whole emotional nature is the heart. And so if you just think of the center of the body, that's what heart means. Actually, soul means the same thing, center. That's the second part of the trinity in man, the emotional nature. So the head is mental, the torso, the heart, the belly, the gut, is the emotional nature. Running from fear to love, right? It's a little chakra, a series of chakras in there. It's a, it's a scale of perfection or a scale of illumination, if you will from the lowest fear vibrations to the highest, most refined loving vibrations. That's in the middle. And then the third element of the trinity in man would be his or her physical nature, the physical body, the ability to uh, experience physical pain and pleasure. You actually experience, most people anyway, experience their emotional pain and pleasure in their physical body as well. In fact, the three parts of the Trinity in man, the mental, emotional, and the physical, are inextricably linked. This is part of the challenge that spiritual teachers, and particularly religious teachers, have always had, especially in the Christian religion, trying to explain that the Trinity is three parts of one thing. I remember uh, in, uh, in I was raised as a Catholic, so we had the catechism class on uh, Saturday or Sunday, and one of the metaphors they gave us was a three-leaf clover, which I sort of like. The idea that it's one plant, it's one little piece of clover here, but it's got these three leaves that it manifests itself in in three ways. Now. Every once in a while, a really bright student will say to me, well, wait a minute, Michael, you're always talking about Plato and uh, Neoplatonic thinking. It seems to be so important to you, and it is, I must say. Didn't Plato describe the Trinity as mind, body, and soul? How do you reconcile mental, emotional, and physical with Plato's mind, body, and soul, it's like Plato is leaving out the emotional and putting in the solar, right? And that's exactly what's happening. Many models, many paradigms, even today, basic psychology combines the emotional with the mental. Again, all three are linked. You can't change one without the other two being affected. Change the way you think, your emotions and your physical behavior will change, change your emotions, you'll have a similar impact on your thinking and behavior, 
And heck, if you just change your behavior without any thought or feeling, that will impact your thoughts and feelings. So let's be clear about that. But there is this area outside of physical medicine called mental health. And mental health includes emotional health. You know, you don't see departments of mental health over here, and then over here is the Department of Emotional Health. They've always been combined in that way, as if the emotional nature is a function of mind or a subset of mind. And it's not that that's wrong. It's just that we're really a trinity. We're a mental and an emotional and a physical nature. So we can forgive Plato for that. And then give a tip of the hat to the idea that he talked about the soul of things, which is, again, in metaphysics, meta means beyond, behind, or above. It's like the um, the essence or the core at the center of the human being and his or her mental, emotional, and physical nature. At the very core of that being is a soul. Or standing above, depending on your perspective or your point of view, standing over the three parts of self is this sense of soul, which incorporates all three but stands apart. And that brings us to our topic of the week, which is mindfulness and being aware of yourself as the soul, above and free of form, or behind all things, and yet still within all things. You are not simply your thoughts. You are not what you think of yourself Because your thoughts are confused. How could you be what you think of yourself when your thoughts keep changing? Further, we'll take a look today at the maybe not so obvious realization that your thoughts can be wrong. Uh, Pretty much every test I've ever taken, I failed to get 100%. I might have gotten a very high score, but I haven't had too many tests in my life where I was not wrong on anything. We all, uh, you know, have limits to our understanding in this mental way. And your thoughts can be wrong. So if you think you are your thoughts, well, then you're going to be wrong a lot. (laughs) There's going to be something wrong with you that your thoughts are wrong. If, on the other hand, you think of yourself as something higher, something more complete, then you could have wrong thoughts and not be a wrong person, right? (laughs) You could have have bad thoughts and not be a bad person. We'll also talk today about whether we're actually generating thoughts when we think or whether we're magnetically attracting thought forms which is a very exciting and liberating concept that's been discussed and debated by esoteric philosophers, anyway, from uh, time out of mind. Part of our our discussion today of mindfulness, as that higher self, that, that fourth element, really, that includes the lower three, and Plato would say also shares the ground 
of God. If you've ever heard the phrase, the ground of God, Masons use it, Rosicrucians use it, a lot of mystics use it. The idea that the soul, well, it's also that phrase in uh, uh, Christianity of uh, sitting at the right hand. <clears throat> this is the idea that that there is a, a heaven, a nirvana, a place between the ultimate source of things and physical death this world and it has a number of names it can be called the hierarchy itself it can be called the buddhic plane it can be called heaven it can be called the repository of souls it can be thought of as a home of the akashic records or the big book that god writes everything down is the home of all experience uh the hub at the center of a bicycle wheel that radiates out in all directions um, and yet, you know, models of two or three dimensions are going to be inadequate. It may be all that we have. It's hard to think beyond three dimensions plus the fourth dimension of time. Most of us can't get our brains around anything other than that because that's what the brain is designed to do. Think in four dimensions, the three dimensions of space and then the added dimension of time. So, nevertheless, our challenge today is simply to think about self as more than this lower correspondence of the divine trinity, spirit, consciousness, and matter, Father, Son, the Holy Spirit, Father, Son, Mother, um, the one, uh, harmony, uh, or the group, and the many, there's dozens of these trinities, I have a list of about 50 of them on my website. If you ever want to check it out, go to theagelesswisdom.com. Click on the home page to go inside. And then on the left side where all the links are, um, choose the one that says Wisdom Nuggets. And when you go in there, you'll see a list of articles and choose the one that says Trinities. Okay, so theagelesswisdom.com, click on homepage to go in, choose the link Wisdom Nuggets, and then read the article on Trinities that you find in there. And you'll see a grid of no less than 50 Trinities. And when you start reading them, one, two, three, one, two, three, you know, father, son, mother, um, the one, the group, the many, uh, unity, harmony, diversity, Brahma, Vishnu, Shiva. Um, <laughs> you start looking at all these. You can also start comparing the columns, all the number ones and all the number threes. And then you'll see all the number twos in the middle, the love aspect, the heart aspect, the soul aspect. And that's where the magic of the trinities come in. So... Uh, today we're going to talk in this webinar about the mindfulness that is available to us when we consider that we are not our thoughts and we're also not our feelings, that we are an awareness that has thoughts, some of them consciously drawn to us, <coughs> or some might argue 
generated from us. And we have feelings that are much more mutable, much more likely to change than our thoughts. They change much more easily at a whim. And we have these behaviors, some of which we're consciously choosing, the way we consciously choose a thought, and many of our behaviors are automatic, you know, reflexive uh, reactions done without consciousness. And we're more than that. So, to develop the mindfulness, the awareness necessary to get anywhere with your spiritual growth, you have to consider that you are more than what you think and more than what you feel emotionally and more than what you speak, feel in your body and act out in the world. You are more than all of that. Now, from the beginning of time, people have understood this. In fact, there's some evidence to indicate that in, how shall I say, pre-industrialized times, right, pre-modern times, people were more aware of this idea of mindfulness and being more than your thoughts, feelings, and behavior than we are today. That we're getting in many ways more stupid and less aware as we become bedazzled by the physical world around us. Science and technology is so fascinating that we tend to obsess on the external world. We believe that the physical world around us and the things that we can actually put our hands on, get a grip on and hold in our hands, are somehow more real than a concept like beauty, for example. I mean, who would argue that beauty is not real? I can't think of any anybody so unconscious that they would not see a reality in beauty. And yet, it's hard to define. It's hard to explain. It doesn't really need to be taught. It's innate, the appreciation of beauty. Though unique to each individual, my sense of beauty might not float your boat or vice versa. And yet, even though we can't get our hands on it, beauty is real. And we're in a world that cares less and less it seems, about beauty. Less and less, it seems, about truth. And more and more about the appearance of things as if that's all. So in many ways, we're devolving. And there, I, I guess, that, that's why there's so many of us moving into the field of consciousness raising or developing awareness so that people can wake up from the somnambulism 
of a reality created by and reinforced to a large extent by media. But just a general agreement that the stuff our money can buy and the science and technology behind that stuff is so fascinating that we fixate on it, we obsess on physical dents. And it's certainly understandable. I mean, I love the material world. I love beauty, and I'm very interested in truth, but I love the material world. And yet I know there's more than the material world. There's something else. And I'm dedicating myself, I always have, to doing the best I can to teach people to see more with new eyes, to open their eyes, to, how does it say, uh, to remove the, the scales from your eyes that you might be able to see that you're not what you think of yourself. And reality is not what you think it is. I mean, it is, but it's so much more than that. And even the idea that you are what you feel, uh, in many ways, that's closer to the truth. But there's at least, you know, a spectrum of feelings also. When your emotions are calm and undisturbed, and free from turmoil, which is rare for most people, there still are feelings, spiritual feelings, very high-frequency, refined feelings that remain. Again, experienced by the meditator, the conscious contemplator, who seeks through a still body a quiet mind and a calm heart, and something remains call it a feeling it's this fourth element that includes the trinity in man the fourth element being the soul the consciousness the awareness the mindful perspective that i can look at a thought and choose to agree with it or disagree with it i can look at an emotion or a set of emotions and when I say look, that's sort of a visual term, you know. Some might have a more a more auditory experience with consciousness or a more kinesthetic experience. It's very, we don't really have the words. We have words like ineffable to say that we don't really have the words <laughs> to describe it. But that's part of the beauty of seeking this level of truth that you can rise to a place or step back to a place. There's those two perspectives again. You can rise above and get the higher perspective or take a step back and get the bigger perspective, right? That you are the awareness of your thoughts and the awareness of your feelings. And yes, you can even be aware of what you're about to do before you do it. Now, there is a crazy idea for most people, see, who just do and do and do and do and then think about it later. Most human beings are emotionally polarized. And that means the order of their behavior is emotional and then physical behavior itself 
and then they think about it. Those of you that take notes, you may want to write this down. This is good. Emotionally polarized. I first read about this in a book by Lucille Cedarcrans, not a very well-known author. But she is a theosophist and an esotericist. She wrote a book called, uh, uh, what was it, Creative Thinking? I think it was called Creative Thinking. And she talked at length about the difference between being emotionally polarized and mentally polarized, and then, of course, spiritually polarized. Emotionally polarized is where most people are. They do things because they feel like it. But if you say to somebody, why did you do that? They'll say, because I felt like it. And you could perhaps, depending on the nature of your relationship, say, well, did you ever think about this or that? Did you consider the consequences of the behavior before you did it? And most people, most of the time, would have to admit, no. The vast majority of what I do, I do habitually, I do unconsciously, I do reflexively, and no, I don't think about it. And even if I initiate something and I don't react, it comes out of habit and emotion, because I felt like it. And people get real defensive about that. It's like... I did, why did you do that? Because it felt like it. You want to make something out of it, you know? They take that stance as if they need to defend the fact that their behavior was largely unconscious. And they're going to fight for the right to behave unconsciously. So the challenge to those of us that are initiating our self-growth, the one to go to the next level, is to become mentally polarized. And that means instead of your thoughts being driven by your emotions and your behavior being driven by your emotions, you get the trinity in order, which is the thought impacts the feeling, creates the behavior or the health or the speech or the physical condition or the way you end up feeling physically in your body. Mental, emotional, physical. Again, look at a person, the head, the heart, the body. It's right there in order, you see. And this is the allegory that I realized in meditation a couple of years ago. It's been more than that, because I was teaching it five or six years ago. Maybe five, six years ago. Who's driving your car? It was the result of reading Lucille Cedarcrans and her essays, Oh, Corrective Thinking. That was the name of it. I'm glad I thought of that. Maybe you can Google it. See if you can find a copy of Corrective Thinking. I think there was some discussion about changing the title, but maybe that's where I got confused. Corrective Thinking by Lucille Cedarcrans. See if you can find that on Amazon. That'd be a challenge. Very pithy, very good work, though. Very profound stuff. And, um, again, she spends a lot of time. The essence of what the book is about is how to develop your awareness 
so that you can become, um, instead of emotionally polarized, mentally polarized, and choose the thought that then impacts the feeling that then creates the outcome. Those of you that know Napoleon Hill's famous quote, you know, Think and Grow Rich, the author Napoleon Hill, excuse me, <coughs> remember he said, if you can conceive it and believe it, you can achieve it. Well, gang, there is the Trinity right there. I want you to get used to seeing the threeness of things. And when you see a construct like that, it's a pretty good bet that the guy knew consciously what he was saying. If you can conceive it and believe it, you can achieve it. Napoleon Hill. That's a formula for success. If you can conceive it in your mind's eye, if you can picture it and imagine it, and believe it, here's the emotional nature, in that order, you see, if you can conceive it and then believe what you can conceive, then you can achieve what it is that you're conceiving and believing. Now achieving in that order. I want to add a little do-da-do-da in there. It's <laughs> a nice little rhyme. So in the allegory of the car, thoughts are the direction. Thoughts determine your direction. Thoughts are not goals so much as they are directions toward a goal. Because as you approach a goal or a solution or a desired outcome of some sort, you're going to fine-tune it. You might move off a little bit one way or the other and modify your goal. So Steve likes to say setting a goal is not so much to attain it, but to get you moving. And I say the same thing. It's about direction. It's not really about getting there. It's about setting the direction. That's what your thoughts are. Clear, detailed, specific thoughts determine your direction toward a particular outcome or result in all things. So your mental nature, the first element of the trinity in man, the mind, your ability to think, determines your direction. That's the steering wheel of the car. Your emotional nature are the pedals. Now, the simplest way, fear is the brake, and anything that you're excited about would be the accelerator. But the truth of the matter is, sometimes when we're frightened, we step on the gas and want to go real fast. So fear could be the accelerator, too. Nevertheless, the emotional natures determine the force. If the thoughts are the energy, then the emotions are the force. That's the engine. That's what drives the darn thing. It's your emotions that move you forward. Your thoughts will determine the direction. But the motivator, the force that moves you, is emotional in nature. And then, of course, the result, which is the car moving forward or sitting still or moving backward or, or whatever, is the outcome, the result of the way you work your thoughts and your feelings, the steering wheel and the pedals. 
uh, we don't really, we could use the transmission in here. I tried to develop this allegory, but there's a point where it just, then you go to the tires and where the rubber meets the road and looking through the windshield. And I've thought about developing this allegory, and it, it, it goes beyond these three, but I'm going to stick with, <laughs> for now, just with the, illustrating the trinity in man, the mental, emotional, the physical, with the steering wheel and the pedals and, and the result of the car moving. But notice the order again. Notice that if you take your foot off the brake and step on the gas, if you come from emotion before you've thought, well, the car will move forward, but Lord knows what direction you're going to go in and where you're going to end up. And that's most people, most of us, most of the time. Why'd you do that? Because I felt like it. Yeah, but did you consider the consequences? No. I just thought that, well, they probably didn't think at all. They just stepped on the gas and didn't bother to grab the steering wheel. On the other hand, if we think and think and think. Have you ever heard of paralysis by analysis where you just overthink something? Right? Have you ever been in a romantic relationship where you overthought it and overtalked it and just drove all the love and the emotion right out of the relationship with too much talk, too much slicing and dicing and figuring things out and not enough allowing your feelings just to sweep you away and have their way with you? Well, that's sort of like, uh, I've got a good grip on the steering wheel. Uh, that's the mental nature. I'm, I'm pointed in the direction I want to be pointed in, but I've still got my foot on the brake. I'm not going anyplace. Right? So it's got to be grab the steering wheel first, get pointed in the right direction, and then put your foot on the gas and begin to accelerate in that direction to create the outcome. If I can conceive it mentally and believe it emotionally, I can achieve it physically. The mental must impact the emotional to create the physical. The mental is the energy. The Emotional is the force behind the energy, and the physical is the outcome. This actually is Ohm's Law. Who knows Ohm's Law? Any of you guys know Ohm's Law from, from grade school or junior high school? Do you remember Ohm's Law about voltage and amperage and resistance, where voltage is equal to the amperage times the resistance? And if you know two of the three, you can always figure out the third one with the, some real simple basic uh, algebra. Well, amperage is like the mental nature. It's the volume of electricity. Voltage is called EMF. That's the electromagnetic force. Voltage is the push behind the amperage. Amperage is the volume of the electricity, the number of electrons in the theory. Voltage is how much push there is behind it. 120 volts, 240 volts, right? How much push? And then the third element is resistance. And there is resistance uh, in driving a car, too, right? 
friction and wind resistance and so on. Not to overwork the allegory, but I think that's pretty fascinating, that even in electricity as a form of energy, you have the idea of the quantity of the energy itself, the quality or the, the force behind the energy. Well, that's the emotional nature. And this is powerful, and this is rich. It's deep and profound, and and I know people that have degrees in psychology that have never stumbled onto this simple metaphor of driving the car, or just, as Cedarcrans wrote in Corrective Thinking, going from an emotional polarization to a mental polarization so that you lead with your thoughts. Now, the whole point of the allegory, who's driving your car, is if your thoughts are the steering wheel and your emotional nature are the pedals and the car itself, the physical vehicle, is the body or the result of things, then who is driving the car? Who's in the driver's seat? Well, most of us allow our emotions to drive. It's as if, as if we let the pedals operate themselves or we put the pedals on autopilot. Right? It would be better, as I've just stated, to imagine the thinking part of you controlling both thought and feeling and driving. But, you know, the best way to look at this allegory is that that fourth element, the awareness or the consciousness that is Plato's soul, sharing the ground of the one life, the one thing. That's who you want in the driver's seat. And most of us have put the soul in the back seat, made it ride shotgun, or maybe locked it in the trunk. As if we find some advantage or some benefit in allowing the car to drive itself, because I feel like it. Why'd you go left instead of right? Because I felt like it. Well, why are you driving 70 in a 45-mile-an-hour zone? Because I felt like it. <laughs> Wait a minute, you're endangering yourself and other people. Why'd you run that yellow light? Because I felt like it. I was angry. I'm in a hurry, and I don't even like you. How much of our lives are like that? where we do what we do without conscious thought because we felt like it, right? But I'm saying even if we go to mental polarization in most affairs and develop ourselves through study, meditation, and mindfulness to create a sense of, I'm going to lead with my mind, I'm going to think, before I leap. I'm going to actually look before I leap. Remember when you were a little kid and your mother or father took you to the curb and they said, this is a street and there's cars here, so stop, look, and listen. Right? And that was drilled into us. Stop, look, and listen before you cross the street. Don't just run out into the street. And you learn that lesson when you're two years old or three years old, but you know, then you get to be 20, 30, 40, and you forget, and you just run into the street, so to speak, in so many affairs. 
And at the end of the day going, oh, my God, I wish I had thought about that before I said it. I can't believe I just blurted that out in the middle of that meeting. Or, boy, if I could take that back, what I did or what I said that came out of unconscious emotion. So the, I think you can see the benefits of being mentally polarized here and actually thinking about what you do before you do it. For most people, that's consciousness. That's what it means to be conscious. I'm talking about taking another step and becoming the fourth element that stands above and behind. An awareness that you are more even than your thoughts. That you are the awareness of your thoughts. You are the awareness of your feelings. You are the awareness of consequences. Then you can be the awareness of beauty and the awareness of truth and and less uh, tangible things as well. When you identify with the self that is above and free of form. In form, but above and free of form and not limited by anything. And we have to consciously climb that ladder or that spiral staircase to get to that level of awareness that says, wait a minute. Not only can I think about how I feel before I act, I can choose my thoughts. I can change my mind. Reflect on the idea of of saying to somebody, well, I used to do it this way, but I changed my mind. Even the idea of changing your mind is often something done or said in retrospect. Yeah, now that I look back at it, I guess I changed my mind about it. What do you mean you guess you changed your mind? The best experiences of changing your mind are when you do that consciously and, and manage your emotions consciously and initiate your behavior consciously instead of just reacting, don't you see? <coughs> Excuse me. So to be the one who can not only manage your behavior and manage your emotional nature, but who can also manage your thoughts, is to move to a higher level of awareness and let that consciousness Awareness, soul, be the one who drives the car. Be the one who chooses how you think, manages how you feel, and then initiates new behavior instead of dancing to everybody else's song. Don't you see? And to do that perpetually in every moment would be Christ consciousness would be the Buddha nature, would be the awareness that you're looking for, and yet, boy, you're not going to see this on CNN, are you? You see? And what religion is going to set you free of religion? And saying, you're all done, you've studied, you came up through religion, and now... You can think for yourself. <laughs> Who's going to sponsor this? 
fortunately, there are, well, I was going to say thousands, what? Millions and millions of teachers in the world today. Millions of men and women who have dedicated themselves to teaching mindfulness, awareness, detachment. And when we use the word detachment, that doesn't mean dissociation or disassociation. Dissociation would mean no longer being involved or associated or affiliated with an idea. Aloof and completely detached. That's not what the word means. It means let go. It means unclutch. It means take one step back to get a more complete, a more inclusive, a more holistic picture. Just let go of it enough. Get over yourself and your ideas. Let go of your ideas. What happens if you put your ideas down? Everything that you think you know that, that makes you so smart, just put them down and take a step back as if you don't know anything. In Buddhism, this is called the beginner's mind. That's why the beginning martial artist starts with a white belt of innocence. And only by work and practice does the belt become a black belt, soiled, so to speak, experienced and used. The beginner's mind, to bring a beginner's mind to things that you think you know is part of the whole mythology of living your life backwards, like this Benjamin Button thing, or Merlin living his life backwards, or the Egyptian mystery school where you would enter as a hierophant, a skilled expert, and graduate as a neophyte. Uh, the highest degree of graduating a mystery school is to know that you know nothing. At least in the typical meaning of the word to know, which is, you know, something is uh, done, it's finished, it's crystallized, it cannot grow anymore. That's the danger of that interpretation of knowledge. There's something more dynamic, and it starts with simply, I'm going to put it to you this way. And then we'll go to some of your questions and comments, and then we'll do our visualization exercise. Uh, the development of consciousness begins with choosing your thoughts. Then you can choose your behavior. You can choose what you do with your feelings. But to say, I can choose whether to agree with this thought or disagree with the thought. You, I mean, this is big in and of itself, the idea that you don't have to agree with your thoughts. That blows people. Some people are blown away the first time they hear it. What do you mean I don't have to agree with my thoughts? I thought I was my thoughts. I think I am my thoughts. I think I am my thoughts. Well, of course your thoughts would tell you that. And what are your emotions telling you? I feel I am my feelings. <laughs> We need to learn what our ancestors knew before.
before we were bedazzled by science and technology and all the cool stuff in the physical world, which is that you're more than the lower three. You're more than your thoughts, your emotional feelings, and your physical speech and behavior. And the way to access that, I think a great way, besides relaxation, you know we're going to go to relaxation, meditation, contemplation, introspection, that kind of stuff. But also just to consider that you can disagree with a thought or choose to agree and reinforce or maybe more to the point, develop. See, thoughts as living things that are in a process of development, that they're organic, that like everything else in life, your mental nature wants to grow and unfold and evolve. And your emotions also, they, they want to add meaning to your life. And we play victim to our thoughts and feelings. We act as if our identity is that of a target, that my thoughts are done to me and my feelings are totally beyond my control. People will say, I changed my behavior, I changed my mind. Who says I changed my feelings? People will say, my feelings changed, but I didn't do it. I was the victim of my emotions. We need to grow up. We need to evolve, at least back to our pre-industrialized people were in terms of, and not everybody obviously, but there have always been the shamans, the medicine men, and and the witchy women that had their finger on the pulse, that could feel life coursing through their bodies, that always felt their feet plugged into the earth, grounded, who always felt as if they were part of the oneness of all things. We've had the explosion of little white butterflies here in upcountry Maui in the last few days. and I was washing dishes and looking out the kitchen window at all these butterflies, dozens of them. And at first they looked like separated butterflies. But I started thinking about their purpose and their role and what they were doing in visiting all the different flowers and reproducing themselves and then I started thinking about the fact that they were flying through the air, fluttering about, and that the air was a real thing. The atmosphere that they were flying through was a real thing. And very quickly, I just slid right into the oneness of this whole thing. These weren't like separated butterflies. <clears throat> they were part of this one process of spring coming as butterflies, as flowers, as air getting a little bit warmer. You know, the humidity changing and sunlight and breezes. and That's where we need to go. Maybe this is the transmission in our allegory of who's driving the car. There are times that you want to focus in to the logical mind and be reasonable. Other times to think creatively. There are times to turn your attention deliberately and consciously to understanding, interpreting, and imagining your emotional nature. Other times you want to turn your attention to how you behave to get us off of autopilot 
to be consciously deliberate and to be awake and to be aware. And, and finally, I'm just going to touch on this because I'm running long. But I mentioned it before. I want you to also consider that you are not generating your thoughts and your feelings, but that thoughts and feelings are forms, just like there are physical forms. You can pick up this book and move it from this place to that. Consider that perhaps there are thought forms, that thoughts are things. They're, they're not physical dense, but they're things. They're electromagnetic forms. And that emotions, in a similar way, are electromagnetic forms that consciousness, the awareness, this fourth element we're talking about today, the soul, the higher self, because of its magnetic nature, are attracting. That every thought that you could think has already been thought. And every feeling that you could ever experience has already been felt and is floating around in the ethers. And the frequency of your consciousness determines the nature of its magnetic attraction and what it pulls toward it. The particular thoughts that you think and the particular feelings that you feel and the tendency even to behave in certain ways, perhaps you're magnetizing. This is the law of attraction, my friends. This is you reap what you sow. This is karma that we talked about last week. Even the idea that thoughts are coming out of you, that you're purposefully generating thoughts, fails to account for the fact that there is a train of thinking or a thought stream that continues even when you stop applying the mental nature, even when you abandon purposeful thinking, sit back in a chair, relax, look at the sunset, your mind is still going, isn't it? It's, <laughs> it's still running. What's that stuff? Or like the program Steve Snyder and I did on uh, Finding Yourself in Paradise a few weeks ago at FocusedPassion.com, we did a show called On Second Thought. Well, if you're your thoughts, and where'd this second thought come that just interrupted your train of thoughts? Whose idea was that? It couldn't have come from you because you were thinking this way, and then you were interrupted by a second thought. Right? We're victims of our thinking. We spend all this money to go to school and then live our lives as victims of our mental nature, victims of our emotional nature. When you tune the frequency of consciousness, when you adjust <coughs> and calibrate what you care about, what's important to you, when you center yourself on love and all of its qualities, peace and understanding and justice, the nature of the thoughts and the feelings that you attract change. And then the nature of your 
behavior, of course, changes. Something for you to think about. Let's go to the questions and comments. If you haven't put anything in yet, the page is right in front of you, providing you're listening. Well, first of all, listening live to us today, but uh, also listening on the web. Callers have to be muted out. And uh, I know that every week most people don't do this, but if you if you just shoot us a name, and you know another interesting thing is we can tell that um, many more people are listening to this program as a podcast or streaming audio after the fact than are able to participate live. So I find that fascinating too. But anyway, if you're with us live here today, just say hi, put in a question or a comment on the page, hit submit. And uh, I'll read a few of these, and then we'll do our visualization exercise, and I'll let you go before half past. And you can spend the rest of the day and, and maybe even the rest of your life thinking about thinking in a mindful and detached way. The, 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 there's three primary ways to initiate your self-growth. Study which is reading all the books you can read, going to lectures and coming to seminars and webinars like this, study. Secondly, meditation. In its various forms, from contemplation, which is simply watching the breath and emptying the mind of all forms, of all thought, feeling, forms, moving out through the gaps between the thoughts to a place of no thing where you become aware of the one thing but also visualization right uh, guided imagery exercises uh, regression hypnotherapy um, teaching tales stories uh, all forms of guided meditation auditory journeys Steve and I use the term audio journey, um, chanting, uh, even journaling can be a, uh, a meditation. All right. So study meditation, including contemplation and all of its other forms, and mindfulness, which is what we're talking about here today, which is carrying that state of expanded awareness out into the physical world as you open your eyes after a meditation, stand up and move out into the world, and you you remain aware and awake and alert. Those are the three things you need to do. Well, uh, let's see. In La Habra, Carol is with us. Of course, I don't think Carol's missed a class since we began over a year ago. She says hello to Michael and say hi to Doreen also. Thank you, Carol. Uh, Lorelei in Tucson is with us today. Hello, Lorelei. I love Tucson. You know, it's, I haven't been there in a long time, but I remember the uh, Saguaro Monument on uh, each side of town, and I remember it was a very sort of uh, artist's community very artistic and uh, <clears throat> also had this wonderful wild west uh, attitude or flavor around it so 
nice to have you with us, Lorelai. She says, uh, awesome class. I have a coworker who constantly lies. I like her, but I don't know how to deal with her lies. Is there a positive way to help somebody stop lying? Thanks, Michael. Peace and love to you and Doreen. Well, what a great question. I wish I had more time to address that, Lorelai. Um, now that I finally come to the questions, there's almost two questions in there, which is how to deal with her lies and then uh, whether to tell her or to get her to stop lying. And um, I think in many ways changing her behavior, creating the trust necessary <clears throat> for her to at least tell you the truth. Right? Remember, if she doesn't trust you, if she's lying to you, and she doesn't trust you, it's because she doesn't trust herself as a judge of character. Right? Or she just doesn't know enough about herself to know that she is trustworthy. She's hiding something. That's going to be more difficult for you to manage or influence than the first question, how do you deal with it? And I think the short answer of how you deal with it is with compassion. You account for it. You know that she tends to not tell the whole truth, maybe to deceive you and deliberately lie to you. I'm not sure why you like her or want to be friends with her if she's lying to you, but maybe none of the lies are malicious. Maybe they're just exaggerations. That would, you know, that would help you, I would think, to be compassionate with her. Um, and try to empathize with the part of her that hurts. Now, that hurts to feel other people's hurt, but you're built for that, and it'll further develop you as the spiritual warrior who can empathize and experience other people's fear and pain. And that's how you begin to heal them, is by feeling their pain. Don't don't go to Bill Clinton with that. I feel your pain. That's not his. <laughs> That's very old. And what do you do with it? Go to compassion. It'll develop you, and it'll benefit her in some amazing, rather remarkable ways. Oh, and then Carol pops back on and tells me, this This straightens me out on the Lucille Cedarcrans thing. I said creative thinking, and I went to corrective thinking, they did change the name. The publishers did a few years ago. When I taught it, it was corrective thinking, and the publishers have since changed it to creative thinking. Well, I think corrective thinking is probably a better title myself. Nevertheless, uh, I would Google both of those, and Lucille, like B.B. King's guitar, Lucille Cedar Crayons, just like it sounds, like the wood cedar crayons, Lucille Cedar Crayons. I'm going to do it myself when we get done here, because I don't think there's very many copies of this book available. But if you can get your hands on it somehow, boy, it'll blow your mind. All right, so initially corrective thinking, now called creative thinking, the seal cedar crayons. Robert in Irvine, Robert Fiegel says, great topic, Michael. Have a great week. Thank you, Robert. Nice to hear from you. Here's a dear friend from... Uh, Back in college days, Jenny in Lansing, Michigan, my hometown, actually. I was born in Lansing, and my first home was married person housing at MSU. 
where I later graduated from. And Jenny says, Aloha, thanks for reminding me to turn off the cruise control. <laughs> Mahalo, Jenny. Uh, well, thank you, Jenny. Mahalo and aloha. Yeah, i got to work that into the allegory now, too, the cruise control. Very good. And in Montreal, Quebec, Charlotte is with us. Hi, Michael. Lots of food for thought today. I would have lots of yes, but, and I will return to all of this and work out my yes. But, <laughs> that's cute. <clears throat> I had a friend <clears throat> that not too many years ago I met this woman who used to say to me, Michael, every time you say but, it contradicts everything you've said before that. So, or how did she say it? Not contradicts, but invalidates, maybe she said. Every time you say but, it invalidates everything you've said up until that point. And I'm not sure I agree with her completely, but I think she has a good point. But, and Irvine Kasha says, warm greetings to you and Doreen, dear Michael. What a wonderful topic today. Many layers of delicious food for thought. And I'm already planning to go back and listen to it many times over. Thank you, Michael. Thank you, Kasha. It's always nice to hear from you, sir. And, um, oh, Carol is reminding me also here that uh, there's a, uh, the publisher of the Cedar Crans book is called Wisdom Impressions. So there you go. Apparently it is available. Wisdom Impressions. Right. They also publish the uh, Nature of the Soul book that I should mention, which was a very big breakthrough for me from human potential and pop psych into um, theosophy and mysticism. It was really the Seal Cedar Crans and these two books. Um, corrective thinking, now creative thinking, and the nature of the soul, which really cracked the code for me. And <clears throat> I taught the nature of the soul for years. It took me, I did it three times. It took two and a half years to teach that book. And uh, the intention was to teach it in a year, but I could never do, I could never do it. There's 40 chapters. I could never do it in a year. It took me, on average, two and a half years. And the people that sat through those classes, what remarkable, amazing people. And what I learned, I mean, basic reason I kept teaching it was so I could learn. Anyway, let's do a little visualization exercise. And uh, anybody else? Oh, yeah, Kareem and Cerrito says, thanks for the insights. Conceive, believe, and achieve. He said, your awareness is frequency, is frequency and true self, and your mental, emotional, and physical are born out of that. Wow, thanks, peace, Kareem. Good, you like that trinity, good. Let's do a little quick visualization exercise, and I'll let you go today. Remind you to forward these programs to people that you know and care about. That's how you help us change the world, is forwarding these programs. It doesn't cost a thing. Share what you care about. Don't just sit on it. So if you take a nice, slow, deep breath, and as you exhale, feel the letting go, considering that there are several dozen people here listening live right now, 
and hundreds more that will be listening to the replays through podcast and streaming audio, enter into that group mind. It transcends space and it transcends time. And feel yourself participating in a group meditation. In fact, consider what must be hundreds of thousands of people at this very moment no matter what the day, date, or time, at any given moment, there have to be hundreds of thousands, maybe millions of people consciously meditating, enter into that larger group of people who are seeking an alignment with the one life, with higher self, with inspiration. To inspire is to breathe into, to be inspired is to stand receptive to the breath, to the word of the Most High. And that you might hear that whisper and see that light and feel that love. Allow your breathing to find its own natural rhythm. Though at any time, you can take another nice, slow, deep breath, and as you exhale, ah, relax even deeper. Feel the letting go. So that through a still body and a quiet mind and a calm heart, you realize something remains. Oh, the mind's going to keep jumping in. Even an experienced meditator knows how the mind has these ideas. It competes with itself for your attention. Listen to me. I've got some worries. Listen to me. I've got some fears and anxieties. And just answer back and say, I listen to you all the time. Right now, I'm going to take just a few minutes. To look at the space between the thoughts. Here's a nice visualization. You're on a mountaintop. You're at Big Sur. You're up on the ridge line at Big Sur, California, right on the edge of the coast. And you're looking out to sea, and there's a dozen ships out there. And there's oil tankers and barges and tugboats and sailing ships and fishing boats. And little by little... They sail away, some to the north, some down the coastline, some out to sea, until there's only a half a dozen boats, and then there's three boats, and there's two boats, and finally the last boat sails away, and the ocean remains, and the sky remains. And the line where ocean meets sky remains. And then you let go even of that. And wake up 
to an awareness that you exist above and free of form. And each morning when we wake up, it's as if we reach down into this incarnated self. Awaken it. And jumpstart the thinking, feeling, and behaving. As if the car could drive itself. Put yourself in the driver's seat. Your higher self. Your true self. The real self. The inclusive self. Self from a point of view that is so inclusive that it has no interest in experiencing any kind of separation whatsoever. Now we must live in in the world. We must live in a world of separated forms. You get in that car and drive out on the freeway, you're a separated form. And you need an ego to identify with that separated nature to keep you safe and separated. But if even once or twice a day for a few minutes you could aspire to the elevated perspective of the true self, the rewards and the benefits would be many. Tell yourself this will be easy to remember and and practice. Remember the room in which you sit, bring it to mind. The chair, the pillow, the cushion upon which you sit. <clears throat> Take a slow deep breath and open your eyes now. Wide awake, alert, back in the room, rested, refreshed, and feeling fine. I'm all out of time, I gotta go. Thanks for being here. Visit FocusPassion.com, be a contributor, forward those programs and the Mystery School shows with the built-in tools, and be gentle of life and take care of each other. From Maui, aloha.